Hello, and welcome to the first episode of the relaunch of the Behind the Schemes podcast, hosted by me, Risha Kolta Larson. Yes, it's been more than a year since our last podcast, but we're back to bring you candid conversations with the most influential and interesting people who are, like me, fighting back against wildlife trafficking. I'm super excited about this podcast episode, which is an interview with John Seller, author of the UN's Lone Ranger, Combating International Wildlife Crime. John was an officer in the Scottish Police Service from 1973 until 1997, during which period he served as a detective investigating murders, rapes, and human rights abuse cases. Ultimately, he was an officer in charge of an area where royal security played a major part of his remit. He then moved to the United Nations and, until 2011, was Chief of Enforcement for the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species, CITES. And you'll hear us refer to CITES quite a bit in this podcast and other podcasts. At CITES, he assisted countries in combating wildlife crime. He's retired now and undertakes work as an anti-smuggling, fraud, and organized crime consultant. John's book is a must-read for anyone who's interested in the global wildlife crime crisis we are facing right now. John's first-hand accounts of his time as the CITES Chief of Enforcement are at once entertaining, enlightening, and sometimes they're kind of scary. (laughs) I managed to catch up with John so that we could talk about his book and, of course, listen to what he has to say about fighting international wildlife crime. If you've been reading the headlines for the past five years or, or so, you might think that wildlife crime is all about poaching and fighting wildlife crime is all about anti-poaching. But is that accurate? Here's what John has to say. One of the most intriguing takeaways from your book is the idea of mainstreaming wildlife crime. Can you elaborate on that? Well, um, I, I think you've you've used the two words that uh, that don't seem to be going together at the moment, and, and the one is mainstream, and the other is crime. Um, you know, for instance, I see lots of meetings being held in various parts of the world, uh, which are entitled "Illegal Trade in Wildlife," and and I don't think that's what we're dealing with. Um, you know, this is not somebody who is failing to, you know, comply with some governmental regulations or or, or, um, or obligations. Isn't filling up a form correctly? Um, you know, this is. Um, Quite undoubtedly, actual crime. You know, it's it, it are, it's people who are going out there, sometimes being funded by others and controlled by others, in order to essentially steal something. Uh, and often, though that that um, theft involves violence, particularly if it's if it's um, poaching, and that violence is is clearly directed towards the animal because the the aim is to kill uh, the species. But that violence can often can often be directed towards the humans whose role it is to to protect those species, um, and you know we don't expect uh, a forest guard or or someone who is not part of the mainstream law enforcement community, and by that I primarily mean the police. We don't expect them to respond to theft. You know the 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 job or the, in, the, 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 the individual that society appoints to respond to crime, whether that's a theft or a rape or a burglary, um, is in most societies a police officer. Um, and yet, in, in most parts of the world, until relatively recently, and, and still in many uh, countries we haven't achieved this, you know, the police are not involved in this. Um, and I think we have to remember that poaching... Um, it's, it's just the beginning, if you like, of a very long chain of criminality that stretches you know, from, from one part of a country uh, across perhaps hundreds of miles of that nation to its borders uh, and then thousands of miles often to, to a continent on the other side of the globe. Um, 
And although anti-poaching work is utterly vital, because after all, you know, if, if a rhino or an elephant is, is shot or poisoned, then if you like, we have lost that battle. Um, you know, although anti-poaching is, is absolutely vital, um, it in itself and of itself is not going to uh, be a, a, a response or, or an effective answer to what we're facing at the moment. The other links in that chain must all be uh, tackled, must all be broken, uh, and often, uh, well, in fact, invariably, it will have to be either police or customs or financial crime units or serious um, organised crime uh, squads that will have to bring their expertise to bear if we are actually going to bring the people who are funding, profiting from and controlling the wildlife crime that is taking place uh, in so many countries around the world today. You might think that John was appointed CITES Chief of Enforcement because of his experience with wildlife, but that was not the case. John is first and foremost a cop. Here he talks about joining CITES. Many of my colleagues, when I moved uh, sort of full time into this into this realm of policing, presumed, um, maybe understandably to a degree, but presumed that uh, or assumed that I was somehow driven by a desire to save the planet, save the rhino, save the tiger. Um, but that has never been my motivation uh, throughout the you know. Four decades, if you like, that I've been uh, connected with law enforcement. My motivation has always been, to put it very simply, to, to, to put the bad guys behind bars. Um, and I think there is that misunderstanding. Um, you know, I, I came into, to, for well, for example, I, I transferred to, to the United Nations, to, to CITES, with very little knowledge of, of either wildlife or wildlife trade. Um, but that's, you know, they didn't want that. Uh, you know, the Secretary General of CITES then and, and his successors, you know, didn't want someone sitting in the office uh, uh, for enforcement with, with knowledge of wildlife. What they wanted was somebody with policing skills. Um, and I think that is, I like to think that's what I brought to the, the, the post for the next 14 years. Um, and, you know, when I retired... Uh, for, formerly from the police uh, and, and then from the United Nations, you know, it was amazing the number of, of people who made comments about, you know, my interest in wildlife. And, you know, I, I don't want to sound silly here, but, you know, I, I don't have a particular personal interest in wildlife. Yes, I, I, through my work with CITES, I got some incredible exposures to to wildlife, to, to how it fits within um, you know, the diverse, biodiversity as a whole. Uh, as, as I recount in my book, I had some absolutely remarkable encounters, very close <laughs> encounters at times, <laughs> with species. But, but that wasn't um, what, what drove me at all. And, um, you know, although I clearly did pick up a lot of knowledge about wildlife, in particular about wildlife trade. Um, you know, through I believe throughout my 14 years, you know, if, if I contributed anything effectively, it was that background in policing. And in fact, um, you know, I, I, I maybe shouldn't say this, but a couple of years ago, um, I was absolutely delighted when um, Her Majesty the Queen appointed me what is known as a, an officer of the, of the Order of the British Empire. I have the letters OBE after my name. And the citation for that um, honour reads, For Services to Wildlife Conservation. And when I read that, I, I really was surprised because <laughs> I never viewed that as being what, I, what my job was. Um, but, and yet, I've, you know, I've, I've made that remark to several people and they, say, they, they said, well, know what you were doing, you know, fed into wildlife conservation. But I certainly, <laughs> I certainly don't see myself as a conservationist. I, I'm, 
I'm a cop, and I've been a cop <laughs> since the age of 17 and a half. When I was at the CITES COP16 in Bangkok in 2013, there was a lot of talk about green courts or environmental courts, special judiciaries to handle wildlife crime. My initial reaction was to think that every country needs one of these. But listen to what John has to say about setting up an environmental court. That's, it's an interesting idea. Uh, it's one that appears to have been used uh, with some success in, in, in a variety of countries. Um, and I think it, it's often prompted for two reasons. The first, that either parts of the, the prosecution service or, or the judiciary as a, as a whole doesn't have a sufficient appreciation for you know, wildlife crime or environmental crime. Um, and then I think the second reason is uh, a concern that you know, prosecutions that, that are going ahead uh, are, are simply becoming completely bogged down within the ordinary uh, you know, court and judicial system. And so, as I say, it, it's, um, it's understandable that some people might be prompted, uh, some governments might be prompted to, to move in that direction. My own view of this is, is I, have, I have some concerns. I'm, I'm wary of going down that road. And the, the main concern is very much what I, I mentioned a couple of uh, minutes ago, and, and that is because it, it, it somehow, well, not somehow, it, it, in many respects, it, it just reinforces that for you know that we are treating environmental crime or wildlife crime that is that is not mainstream crime. It's not something that deserves to fit within the um, with the ordinary judicial system. It's not something that that warrants that or justifies that. And so I think that there's a real danger that we continue to, if albeit unintentionally uh, and inadvertently. We, we, we continue to almost devalue what is occurring. Um, the other very strong reason I have for, for having concern about that is that it will also tend to um, pro prompt prosecutors, but also judges, to expect that any prosecution that comes before them or that is, is conducted will be using solely wildlife or environmental legislation. Mm. And that, I think, is something that has been a major mistake around the world. Uh, and it's something that we really uh, need to turn our backs on. Because all too often, uh, wildlife law simply doesn't have the, the elements within it, whether that's penalties, uh, potential penalties for courts to impose, or, or powers, uh, of investigation uh, to, to um, enforcers that actually uh, meet what is required if we're going to combat what is now absolutely undoubtedly organized crime. Uh, and so uh, there, are, there are examples, many good examples around the world, and, and probably the best of this is the US Department of Justice, where Rather than using wildlife legislation, you know, they're using racketeering laws, smuggling laws, um, a variety of, of uh, criminal statutes to, to respond to what is taking place here. Um, you know, we, we need to get to have more uh, people connected with wildlife crime in court, for example, being prosecuted for, for money laundering, uh, to have their assets uh, seized. Um, to be charged with uh, crimes such as conspiracy. And, you know, I, th I think um, uh, that, that, you know, those type of offences, those types of charges, um, you know, simply don't fit within a green court, an environmental court. Um, and meaning no disrespect to, to the individuals whatsoever, but... You know, the, the type of prosecutor that is going to be allocated to the work in environmental court is probably going to be very different from the one 
who is who is given the task of bringing organized crime or money launderers uh, to, to court and, and so uh, once again I think you know we run the risk of, of moving these two areas apart when um, they, we should be mainstreaming them I completely see what you mean it's almost like replace the word wildlife with the cocaine then what would happen you know what kind of a case would you have then exactly um and you know again in fact it it, it maybe takes us back to one of your your first uh, points that um you know you run the risk of of um you know someone who is who's prosecuting uh, in an environmental court day to day being regarded by um, his colleagues as oh you know that's the guy, that's the bunny hugger you know he, he can't handle p- proper criminal cases and so we've got him prosecuting poachers um, you know th- that that's a terrible message to be sending out. Shortly before I recorded this interview with John, the Royal United Services Institute published a paper entitled An Illusion of Complicity, Terrorism and the Illegal Ivory Trade in East Africa. After I read the paper, I was concerned. I wondered if shifting focus from terrorism to regional corruption and organized crime groups might make the ivory issue less important to the media and the public. So I asked John about the links between ivory trafficking and terrorism and corruption. Can you share your thoughts on the recent analysis um, suggesting that ivory trafficking isn't quite as related to terrorism as we thought, um, or at least has been reported by the media, and that our focus in this area really should be on uh, regional corruption. Um, I, I think that's. I think that the paper that has been produced by the the Royal United Services Institute is is uh, makes for fascinating reading. Um, you know, I, I'm not. I wouldn't say that it, it is necessarily startling, uh, and, and um, I don't know that its recommendations are either. But I think it, it is very useful, and I think if you like, it's it's helped bring some of this back into focus. Um, there are undoubtedly some groups, whether you call them rebel groups or, or terrorists or, or whatever, um, that have links to uh, wildlife crime, that are either um, you know taxing what is going on. Some of them may be actually engaged in it. Some of them may be receiving products uh, from poachers uh, and and then selling that in order to fund their activities. Some of them, it appears, are actually engaged in in, um, poaching themselves. But I think some of the claims that have been made or some of the um, statements that have been made uh, as to how in-depth these links are, are run the risk of being misleading. Um, I actually speak about this in my in my book because, you know, when I first came into to this field in, in the late 1990s, um, it was clear that if you wanted to to get the attention of the law enforcement community, you had to demonstrate the involvement of, of organised crime. And then, you know, as the years passed, and particularly post 9/11. Um, one almost felt that you were having to jump through a hoop again uh, when you know you would regularly be asked, you know, is there any connection between terrorism and, and wildlife crime? And and my responses to that uh, have always been that if you look at terrorist groups around the world, um, a, a, a not insignificant amount of their funding, particularly today, comes from crime. Uh, and if you look at, for example, FARC in Colombia, uh, they, they engaged in kidnapping, they engaged in, um, uh, in illegal trade in narcotics. If you looked at some of the European terror groups, um, they were involved in uh, bank robberies. If you looked at the, the Irish Republican Army, they were involved in, in frauds related to um, agricultural diesel. And so 
you know, not, not surprisingly and perfectly understandably, these groups, if they were looking for funding, they would look around them and, and see, right, what here can we do in order to, to, to get more money? And if you're based in Somalia, then it probably makes sense to, to engage in piracy. Um, you know, if, if you're based in Somalia, uh, conducting bank robberies isn't much of an option to you. If you're based in Central Africa, um, you know, kidnappings and, and bank robbery, diesel fraud, <laughs> they have very limited scope. But, you know, you, before long, your eye is probably going to come upon these large grey animals. Uh, one of the species has these white things sticking out the front of the face, um, and then the other has, has a sort of horn or two horns sticking out the front of their face. So it, we, we really shouldn't be surprised if some of these groups um, are engaging in this. And in fact, it would be almost astonishing if they were not. And if you look back over history, for example, during the, the, the long period of, of very extreme civil unrest in, in countries like Angola, um, there is ample evidence that that some of the, the arms and ammunition was funded through uh, trade in ivory. But I think you know, it, it is undoubtedly much more important that, to recognize that it is organized crime groups uh, and networks some of them based within um, Africa, uh, some, uh, I think, uh, undoubtedly based in, in Asia, uh, that will have some control over what takes place in, on the African continent. Uh, in other cases, I think they're simply linking up with groups or networks that, that are Africa-based. Um, and yes, you know, corruption is undoubtedly uh, a major, uh, major thing that we have to tackle. And in fact, um, in many respects, it's probably easier to respond to and combat crime than it might, may be to respond to and combat corruption. Um, mm. Because corruption is such a, an all-pervasive thing that, that it's, you know, it's, it's, it's got tentacles that tend to wend their way into absolutely every corner of society. Um, but, you know, again, unfortunately, uh, you know, this was something that I regularly came across in, in CITES. Um, and certainly whenever uh, we saw uh, major um, serious levels of wildlife crime, you would see uh, major and serious levels of corruption. Um, but I think it's also important that we, you know, we don't um, simply, you know, tar the, um, the developing world with this. Uh, corruption is something that, you know, that, that reaches out uh, to the, the, the developed world too. Uh, mm -hmm. Although, you know, if you like, um, you know, officials in, in, in the developing world are perhaps more prone to this or, or, or there are, you know, um, features in the background that perhaps make, um, make them um, more liable to, to, to fall to this. Earlier this year, the former head of the CITES Management Authority of Guinea was arrested for his suspected role in corrupt and fraudulent actions in the issuance of CITES export permits. This incident, of course, spurred on the typical netizen comments like, CITES is corrupt, and that sort of thing. What I think this type of reaction indicates is that the public is terribly misinformed about what CITES is and is not. Here, John explains the roles of in-country CITES authorities, the CITES Secretariat, and the convention itself. Do you think the arrest of this individual is going to be an isolated incident? Well, maybe a, the best response to that would be that I hope it is not, <laughs> because um, uh, regrettably, as I've just said, during my 14 years with CITES, I saw um, indications and, and evidence of corruption um, in you know, quite a number of, of national CITES authorities. Um, and, you know, this links to, to what I, I just said. You know, if, if you're an official 
um, who has the responsibility for issuing uh, documents that will authorize trade. And, and what I, I should emphasize here that I'm, I'm not referring to, to the Guinea uh, situation, I'm, I'm, I'm talking generally. Um, you know, if, if, you're, if you're responsible for that or if you have some control over that, then um, th that's a situation where you, you have considerable influence and power. Um, and if you're someone who is inclined towards corruption, um, then that is a situation that, that, that you personally can abuse. Um, the other side of the coin, of course, is that um, unscrupulous individuals will, will, uh, will misuse that or make use of that by offering you bribes uh, in order to persuade you to, to issue documents that, that you know uh, should not be issued. Um, but this is, you know, this is not something that is peculiar to, to, to CITES. Um, many years ago now, the, the, the then Secretary General of, of the World Customs Organization um, admirably uh, made a public statement acknowledging that, in fact, a customs administration uh, of all government departments is, is probably the one that, if you like, is best placed or, or worst placed, whatever the, the most appropriate <laughs> phrase is, um, with regards to that. Um, you know, the, the, a customs officer is, is someone who is standing there uh, you know, clearing cargo either for export or import. Um, and, you know, at, at, at the end of the day, it very much comes down to, to whether he puts his stamp or his signature on a document. Uh, and that's that, uh, like his CITES counterpart, uh, gives him considerable influence and power. And then just to clarify, the CITES authorities, um, the in-country CITES authorities are not part of the Secretariat. I think that's a really common uh, misconception uh, among, uh, among the pub public. Exactly, yeah. and in fact, you know, this is this is part of a larger misconception that you've just touched upon. Um, you know, as, as I moved around the world, people would often say to me, um, you know, why isn't CITES doing that? Or, <laughs> you know, CITES isn't allowing us to do this. Um, you know, CITES has failed here, or CITES has succeeded there. Um, CITES is, yes, it's, it's a convention, it's a treaty, it's international law. And if it works, it's because the countries that have voluntarily decided to use that regulating mechanism, if they do that effectively, if they enforce it effectively, then CITES, if you like, works. Um, if they don't, uh, either through lack of resources, lack of political will, or, or, or through the corruption that we've just been discussing, then CITES will not, in inverted commas, work. Um, the CITES Secretariat is, is a group of individuals, UN officials based in, in Geneva, uh, who help those countries to implement the convention, but they have no decision-making powers, uh, they, they don't set policies, uh, it is the countries that have acceded to the treaty that determine uh, how, how, it will be, how it will be implemented. Um, and I think that causes a lot of confusion, and it also causes a lot of, um, you know, upset and, and um, um, some, not uh, anger is perhaps too, too strong a word, but, um, you know, I've, I've listened to people in Africa uh, saying to, to me, you know, CITES won't let us, you know, Geneva won't let us do such and such. You know, and I've had to point out to them, look, um, you know, th this has nothing whatsoever to do with Geneva. It's, it's your country and others who have gone to a meeting, uh, have cast their votes and have decided uh, how, how this will go forward. Um, I remember being interviewed by the BBC many years ago um, and the, the, the reporter was talking about the, the ivory situation at the time you know, and said to me, um, you know, it, it's ridiculous what, what the CITES Secretariat is doing um, when the whole world is against trade. Uh, and, I, and I had to say to him, look, I'm sorry, that's completely inaccurate. 
you know, you know the, the, it's not very long ago, and this is, I'm speaking a few years ago, where, you know, the, the CITES community came together and by a majority decision decided that there ought to be some trade in ivory. So, you know, those were the governments, if you like, of the world. Um, so it, it, it is frustrating, um, and I think it, um, it causes very considerable misunderstanding uh, about how the convention works, and particularly, you know, for what the Secretariat for that convention can do. Um, the other thing that there are the two issues that I think uh, cause great misunderstanding, um, and the one is um, that CITES has got nothing to do with the domestic situation in countries. Um, so, you know, to a certain extent, although clearly it it, it impacts on on the rest of the, the convention. Your poaching is, is not a, a really a consideration for, for the, the convention. Um, you know, domestic trade is not really uh, a consideration for the convention. It's what happens cross-border uh, where CITES uh, provisions uh, take effect. Um, and, and so, the, you know, I, I think this, this um, as I say, the, this misunderstanding does cause a lot of confusion and a lot of, of, of understandable uh, frustration. The Convention on Trade in Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora. Many people, when they hear the term endangered species, assume that the convention extends to animal welfare issues, but it does not. The, the, the other thing, of course, um, that isn't understood, I think, is that CITES has got nothing whatsoever to do with animal welfare. Um, and so, you know, if you, as an individual, you may be, for example, horrified by the thought of some form of, of trade in, in, uh, in particularly animals uh, and feel that that's immoral or you feel that it, it is unnecessarily cruel. Um, the, the only time when animal welfare is considered by the convention is at the time of, as I mentioned, these cross-border movements. So that, for example, uh, if, if you're going to ship live animals from Africa to, to Asia, then you're obliged to do so uh, in a manner that, that will be humane uh, and where their welfare will be addressed. But the way that you, for example, capture those animals uh, in the wild um, or if you, you know, put them through any sort of training process uh, before they're moved, that has nothing to do with the convention. And um, a number of, of um, or one NGO in particular, uh, has contacted me um, once or twice this year about the situation in Zimbabwe, where elephants were, were being um, moved to, to, to China. Um, and, and clearly, did not fully appreciate um, the, the implications of the convention, the provisions of the convention, and, and, I, and I, I don't mean this in a, in a negative way, but the limitations of the convention. Um, same thing applies in relation to hunting. Uh, you know, this is something that is, is permitted within the convention, and if certain con conditions are met, uh, and the convention does not uh, sit back and, and try and make moral judgments. Uh, and that's been a very deliberate uh, stance or position, if you like, ever since the convention uh, came into being. And I think those persons who drafted the wording of the convention very deliberately uh, stayed away from such issues because um, and I, I don't mean this in a, in a dismissive way whatsoever, but it, it could be very easy to get completely bogged down in discussing those issues. One of the many disturbing passages for me, a bona fide bunny hugger, in John's book, was this one about a street market in Hong Kong. As I stood there, a woman who looked like your average housewife conducting her household shopping appeared and spoke to the stallholder. She pointed to a particular turtle in the tank, and he reached in and brought it out. Placing it upside down on a wooden board atop his counter, he grasped a meat cleaver and began to hack the animal out of its shell. Once clear of its carapace, he dropped the still-alive meat into a plastic bag and handed it over to the lady who paid him. 
I was appalled by what, to my mind, was outright cruelty, but neither the shopkeeper nor his customer batted an eyelid. Uh, and one of the other things I learned uh, at a very early stage when I started to work internationally was that the, the way that, um, I, I hate to use these such a phrase, but the way, for example, that we in the West look at animals um, is very different from, from the way that culturally and historically um, nations and, 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 and citizens in the rest of the world look at animals. And it would be impossible to um, to regulate that, um, and so all all of the uh, welfare issues that you're talking about would fall under the country's uh, national legislation. Correct. That's right. I've seen unpleasant things as well. For example, when I was in Vietnam, we went to some of the facilities where bears are held captive in tiny coffin cages, so bile can be extracted from their gallbladders. We posed as American zookeepers seeking husbandry advice. I asked one of the bear bile proprietors how the bears were exercised. He grinned at me like I didn't know anything about bears and told us that bears don't need any exercise. John points out next that different cultures have different views on wildlife. And of course, one very good example of that, um, you know, topically, is, is Cecil the lion, um, where you know there was an absolute outrage uh, by many groups um, in the developed world, um, and yet it, I, I quite, it was quite interesting. I um, I read in the in the media. Uh, something of a lone voice. Uh, it was uh, someone who I think was actually a citizen of Zimbabwe, who was trying to get across the point. Actually, you know, do you know what it, it's like to live with lions? Um, same applies with with elephants. Um, you know, one can look upon the, the elephant as as a very noble and and, and um, magnificent creature, um, and and I certainly wouldn't. Um, you know, I, I, I wouldn't have any opposite feelings to that. But I, has, I have also had the opportunity to, to stand and, and speak to and meet with people um, where, you know, an elephant is something that comes along and destroys their crops or knocks down their house or, or tramples their cousin to death. Um, and so, you know, it's important that, um, you know, we don't get... Uh, any sort of rom romantic notions, allow romantic notions to, to influence our decision-making, I think. Honestly, for some of us, the convention preamble, which states that peoples and states are and should be the best protectors of their own wild fauna and flora, can be frustrating in cases like this. Here's what John has to say. Well, I mean, it, you know, the, the whole field of, of hunting is, 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 a, uh, is a very touchy one to get into. Uh, but, but I think that the final point I would make here is um, I think we have a, a terrible tendency in, in the developed world to believe that, you know, we know the answers and, and that we somehow have the right to tell other countries how they should handle issues. Um, one of the, uh, I can't remember the, the exact wording, but uh, in its sort of introductory text, uh, the CITES Convention um, makes very plain its belief, um, or the drafter's belief that, you know, sovereign countries are, are the people who should decide um, how their natural resources uh, are, are dealt with. And one, one, of, one of the sort of examples I used to make in relation to this was, um, you know, in Scotland, we have got a centuries, centuries-long history of poaching of deer and salmon. Now, I can, I can predict what the reaction would be of either the Scottish Parliament or the British government as a whole if... African nations were to turn around to us and say, all your exports of venison and salmon must cease until you have eradicated poaching. Um, you know, we'd be, you know, we'd be saying, well, hang on a minute. You know, what has our use of wildlife, our wildlife, got to do with you? And yet, we don't seem to be at all reluctant or even hesitant to turn around and tell other countries how they should conduct 
their use of natural resources. Um, I think there's some terrible hypocrisy going on here. I would agree with that, and it goes back to uh, the con- you know the convention itself. Yes, yes. Um, although, of course, um, you know, to, to, to try and um, you know maybe bring things away, away from the trade issue. Um, this is this was one area that that frustrated me and continues to frustrate me. Um, that you know we we have to remember that CITES is primarily uh, a trade convention, although clearly, um, you know, the, behind that, it, it, it sits on, if you like, principles of conservation. Um, what it is not is, is a crime convention. Um, and so, you know, it, it, um, I think also uh, it is sometimes uh, unfairly criticised uh, in the manner in which it has responded or its officials either in the Secretariat or at national level uh, have responded to um, you know, international wildlife crime. The convention, convention was not drafted to respond to that at all. You know, the people who sat down in, in 1972 and, and the years leading up to, to the, the, the signing of the convention in, in 73 um, couldn't possibly have imagined what is going on, for example, in South Africa today. Uh, and so, you know, that that's another reason why, um, you know, th- this has to be dealt with, responded to by the mainstream law enforcement community. You know, as I have said uh, on, on many occasions, um, if, if you were wanting to design strategies to respond to, um, you know, narcotics trafficking, you, you wouldn't sit down with the pharmaceutical industry. Um, and so, you know, is it is it correct when we're trying to respond to organised trafficking of wildlife that we're sitting down, if you like, with the conservation or with the wildlife trade community? Um, they clearly have a role to, to, to play, but, but that, to my view, um, you know, the, the, the people that one needs around the table to design and implement those strategies are not the people who attend uh, meetings of CITES. An important theme of John's book is the urgent need for communication and intelligence sharing across all the links in the trade chain. I could not agree more. It is incredibly disappointing to see poachers, traffickers, and dealers all released on bail time and again despite having a criminal record. What can we do to convince these various agencies to share information with each other? And how can we facilitate that? How can we get that to happen? Well, I mean, as far as facilitation is concerned, um, you know, I don't think that is really much of an issue because there are, you know, communication channels existing, very effective ones, whether they're those of the, the World Customs Organization, uh, Interpol, to, to a lesser extent, the, the CITES Secretariat, that, that are there and have existed for years and, and can be used. Uh, and, 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 and indeed, at times, are very effectively used um, for all forms of crime, in, including, you know, wildlife trafficking. Um, I mean, I, I have lost count of the number of meetings, seminars, task force events that I have been to where, um, without exception, everyone round the table agreed that, yes, we need to share more information, and almost without, without exception, uh, they all went home and did nothing. Um, I, I, think, I think there are a number of reasons. Uh, I think... There is a tendency within the law enforcement community, and I know as a young police officer I was guilty of this, that, that one is uh, somewhat parochial in your, in your out view, outlook. You know, you, you, you've got a, uh, probably a heavy workload, and so your focus is on dealing with your issue. Um, and if you, know, if, if you can arrest somebody uh, who's been responsible for, let's say, a, a burglary, uh, in, in your area of policing, uh, you may not be interested to, to spend the time questioning him to see if, he, if he's also been breaking it into houses in, 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 the, in the next jurisdiction. Um, so, so there's that. <clears throat> Excuse me. There, there's also 
uh, I think, a sort of traditional and cultural and historical um, lack of trust in counterparts, particularly if you don't know those individuals, if, if you're not used to working with or alongside those individuals. Again, going back to my early uh, police uh, career in, in, the, in the early 1970s, you know, we did not uh, work uh, terribly closely or, or, or terribly regularly with uh, the customs service in, in Scotland. And yet by the time, you know, I, I, I left to, to move to the, to the UN, um, we were working very regularly with our customs colleagues uh, because we had recognised, particularly in relation to, to drug smuggling, uh, that we, we each had very distinct uh, and separate skills that, that could be brought to the table and, and, and that, you know, if they were combined, they could be so much more effective. And, and one sees umpteen examples of this um, in other forms of crime, be it human trafficking, uh, narcotics, um, firearms, um, smuggling, etc. Et um, uh, and I think, you know, that is, is I think, the, the, the best way to move forward, that, that we simply adopt more and more multi-agency uh, approaches, uh, create either... Um, you know, task forces, uh, multi-agency units, whatever you want to call them, uh, throughout the world. Um, and I think, um, you know, talking about the, the, the lack of, of collaboration between, um, you know, your sort of principal agencies like police and customs, it is even worse if you then look at the situation between, let's say, national parks, and um, and the police, um, you know. I, I can remember many years ago in Africa, talking with a uh, a chief wildlife warden from from a national parks department, who was explaining to me that, um, you know, if, if his staff arrested a poacher and that individual was going to to court the next morning, you know, let's say they'd arrested John Seller and he was going to court for for poaching a an elephant. If they contacted the, the police and said, look, we, we have John Seller, we're taking him to court tomorrow, the court is going to want to know whether John Seller has any criminal previous convictions, uh, can you please tell us? There wouldn't be any hesitation in supplying uh, the, that information to the, the wildlife agency. On the other hand, if, if they had gone to the police and said, We've got some uh, information, some intelligence that, that a guy, John Seller, uh, may be involved in, in, in the poaching that is going on in the park at the moment. Um, can you maybe tell us whether you have any intelligence about this man, whether he has got any um, previous convictions, whether he's come to the notice of the police before? Says, we will not get that feedback at all. Um, hmm. And, you know, just in, in the status that people have, um, you know, the, the sort of game scout, the, 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 the warden, the forest guard just doesn't have the, the same sort of status within either the law enforcement community or the general community that, that a police or, or customs officer has. He doesn't, uh, he or she doesn't um, benefit from the state's same level of training. He doesn't have the same sort of legislative powers and he's, he or she certainly won't have uh, comparable salaries. Um, and, and I've heard, for instance, of, um, of individuals, um, you know, wildlife officers who've been working at airports uh, and have been standing either at check-in or, or in a departure area and have seen someone who they felt was rather suspicious. They have gone over to that individual and as they were legally entitled to do, uh, have asked to see inside that person's luggage uh, and the person has just refused and walked off. Um, and, and in fact, to give you an illustration of something else we talked of earlier, on, on one occasion, um, uh, one of these individuals actually saw this person um, in possession of something that was clearly illegal. Uh, he attempted to, to seize it from him uh, and the person brushed him aside and, and walked off into the departure uh, area of the airport. The, the person then went to a customs officer 
uh, and said the wildlife agent went to a customs officer, recounted what had just happened and pointed out the individual. The customs officer walked across, talked to the individual. The, the wildlife officer saw money change hands uh, and that was the end of it. There are, other example, there are other examples in the book, for instance, where um, diplomats have uh, abused their status and have brushed off people, have refused to allow them to, to examine their baggage or refused to be you know, questioned. Um, and a, an awful lot of people, including customs and police officers, are actually unsure about their authority uh, when they're dealing with individuals that have a diplomatic uh, status. And yet, in fact, uh, you know, there, is, there is a convention that deals with this. And if they have good grounds for suspicion, um, then, then they are entitled to take action. There is a very well-known case of a Vietnamese diplomat trafficking rhino horns out of South Africa in 2008, and another of Chinese officials using diplomatic pouches to smuggle ivory out of Tanzania in 2014. I can't say either of these stories is surprising since the use of diplomatic pouches to smuggle rhino horn and ivory out of Africa has been documented since at least the 1980s. But just how far can diplomatic immunity go? And the diplomatic pouch is not immune to search and seizure, correct? Well, let, let me let me try and clarify this. Um, you know, you cannot routinely and in a random fashion uh, start opening diplomatic pouches. But um, you know, to give you an example uh, from Africa, um, that I that I was you know personally um, not so much involved in, but but I had a personal. Um, I, I saw part of this. Um, there was an instance where. Um, it wasn't exactly baggage. It, in fact, it, it was large metal boxes were, were in transit uh, in, a, in an airport in, in Africa. And they passed through routine X-ray screening. And the, um, the X-rays showed up objects inside uh, the boxes that had, every, you know, had, had the shape of, of being elephant tusks. Uh, and it appeared to be absolutely clear that these were elephant tusks. Um, the airport authorities advised, advised customs, and, and they came along, they agreed that, that they, these things seemed to be absolutely packed with, with tusks. Um, they found the passenger uh, who this baggage belonged to. He was in the departure area. Uh, they tracked him down, they pulled him aside, and he produced a, a diplomatic passport uh, and said that, um, you know, he claimed he was a diplomat and he claimed that uh, his baggage uh, had diplomatic immunity. And the customs officers, um, uh, 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 as I alluded to, <clears throat> were unsure of, of their legal authority. Uh, and so they, they actually called the wildlife department <clears throat> and purely by chance, excuse me, Purely by chance, um, the, the, one of the wildlife officers who was on duty uh, had attended a training course uh, that I'd participated in um, the year before where I had addressed the issue of diplomatic immunity. And they came out, they looked at the boxes, saw that they were full with tusks uh, and said, no, it's okay, we are actually uh, entitled to do something here. The, the diplomat refused to, to hand over the keys uh, to, so that the boxes could be opened. He refused to give authority for the boxes to be inspected. So instead, the wildlife officers uh, just forced them open. And yes, there were, I, I can't remember, there were dozens of tusks. Um, and in fact, the, the diplomat was, was, um, was detained. Um, but, you know, it's not something that happens a lot, but unfortunately, it's certainly not something that is unknown. There is sadly no shortage of seizures when it comes to wildlife crime. Literally tons of elephant tusks, rhino horns, pangolins, tortoises, and other endangered species have been confiscated at airports and seaports. But where are the arrests and what can be done? There seems to be, you know, there's always a lot of hoopla around the seizures. But then 
what happens? There's no arrest. What is going wrong? Who's dropping the ball? And why why are we not seeing any follow-up or arrests in these large-scale um, seizures? It seems to me like there would need to be um, a lot of people involved to facilitate those um, sorts of shipments. Well, <clears throat> again, I think... Um... There are a variety of, of, of reasons for that. Um, I think part of it is, is the parochialism that they refer to. Um, you know, if, if customs officers stop um, or, or, or intercept a, a major shipment, um, th th there may be a tendency for them to sit back, pat themselves on the back and think, well, yeah, we've done a great job here. Um, but nothing else happens. They, you know, they don't pass information to either the country of destination or, or, or the country of origin. Um, you know, myself and, and, and colleagues in, for example, the, the World Customs Organization, Interpol, have been encouraging the use of, of controlled deliveries uh, for, well, it literally is at least a decade, a decade and a half. And yet the number of, of times that, that, that that is used are just, oh, uh, I mean, you, you probably wouldn't need one hand to count them. Um, but again, you know, this sometimes comes down to this lack of imaginative or, or innovative thinking. Um, many years ago now, I, I was at a, at a meeting in Interpol and I was doing just what I've said. I was encouraging more use of controlled deliveries. And somebody from, uh, I won't name it, but it's, it's one of, of Europe's most developed countries, um, turned to me afterwards and said, you know, Mr. Seller, you know, we would love to do that, but our wildlife legislation does not authorize us to use controlled delivery uh, techniques in relation to, to wildlife. And I said to them, well, um, if, if you're, you know, does your criminal law, um, you, presumably your criminal law contains within it the crime of conspiracy. He said, oh, yes, yes, of course. I said, then, you know, could you use a controlled delivery if you're investigating a conspiracy, criminal conspiracy? He said, oh, yes, yeah, well, you know, without, uh, without any hesitation. I said, I said to him, right, think about this. If someone is, is paid uh, and equipped to go out into the savannas of Africa, shoot an elephant, remove its tusk, bring it back to that controller, that controller will then probably sell the tusk to a middleman. The middleman will then hand it over to someone who will arrange for it to be concealed within um, other cargo that is about to leave the country. Um, there will be either fraudulent or false uh, completion of, of export documents, manifests, etc. Uh, it then travels across uh, the world. There may be some corruption of, of port officials or customs uh, on the way. It gets to another country thousands of miles away uh, where a sort of similar process goes through. It has to be smuggled or, or corruptly imported to the country. It goes to people that will um, deal with it, the ivory, process it, feed it into um, clandestine markets. Now, what is a better example of a criminal conspiracy? And, you know, you, you could see the, the light bulb going on in his head. Um, and... You know, that, that, as we so often come back to this, you know, this is the problem, that, you know, we, we're not viewing this as crime. You know, if, if uh, you know, if, if, if um, customs officers, you know, intercepted either accidentally or, or, or deliberately through working from intelligence or risk profiling or risk assessment, profiling, etc. You know, if they came across a, um, uh, a container full of Kalashnikov semi, uh, you know, um, assault rifles or, or a large um, shipment of, of cocaine, um, you know, I, I'm sure that controlled delivery would be something that they would undoubtedly consider 
They wouldn't necessarily do it because, you know, it's, it's, I'm not suggesting that it, it's easy. There are lots of things that one has to uh, take a, a, into account before you engage in, in a controlled delivery. But it would absolutely, undoubtedly, pass through their mind. And yet, you know, for some reason, it, it doesn't seem to. I think it was either, I think last week, I, I read a, a media report of a shipment of ivory that had, been, that had taken place. Um, it appears that, you know, no effort had been done to do anything other than seize it. Um, and, you know, the, the media report indicated that the, the company uh, that, that apparently it was destined for uh, had turned around and said, oh, we have no responsibility for this or denied any knowledge of it. Well, surprise, surprise, what did you expect them to do? And I think that gets back to what we were saying about, uh, you know, just replace the word wildlife with, uh, with cocaine or uh, assault rifles, like you were saying. Yes, and, and uh, you know, one of the other issues that, that maybe I, I should have mentioned earlier is that, you know, I don't wish to be too critical of the mainstream law enforcement community or, or people within it, because I think, in fact, you know, like my colleagues who thought that I was a bunny hugger, um, a, lot of, uh, a lot of them do not have the appreciation of just how organized this is, sophisticated it is, and indeed how profitable it is. And so, you know, if, for example... Um, you know, the head of a customs department um, learned that that a, a major shipment of, of uh, assault rifles or cocaine had been seized and a controlled control delivery had not been considered, he would probably be very annoyed. Um, and yet, you know, if told about rhino horn or tusks, that might not be his reaction. Um, I think there, there remains to be a lack of appreciation at the highest levels of just how serious this has become. Um, you know, quite quite a large part of my role was, was spent um, attending meetings of, of some of the most senior law enforcement officials in, in the world. Uh, and I would give, you know, presentations at these events. And without exception, um, commissioners, deputy commissioners would come up to me afterwards and say, Mr. Seller, we never realized just how bad this was. Um, the other thing that I've quite often said is that I think we're missing opportunities here. Um, not only are we failing to exploit important opportunities when we intercept things, um, but we're also missing opportunities to actually bring people that are probably already on the radar of, of many agencies uh, and who, you know, in some instances, you know, they've maybe been after John Seller uh, for trafficking narcotics for years, but John Seller is, is covering his tracks very carefully when, it, when he, he, his network is smuggling um, heroin or cocaine. But he may not be covering those tracks so carefully if he's smuggling tusks or pangolin skins. Uh, and so I'm convinced that, that there are times when organized crime is, is, and I don't mean this to be a pun, wildlife-related pun, but, but I think, you know, they, they are perhaps exposing their soft underbelly to us. Um, and we're failing to exploit those opportunities. Um, same in relation to, you know, money laundering, um, aspects like that. Um, you know, we're not, we're not being imaginative. We're not innovative and, and trying to think, right, how can we get this person? Um, when I was a detective, there were umpteen instances where, um, you know, a, a crime would be committed in our area um, and, and we would be utterly convinced, my colleagues and I would be utterly convinced that we knew who was responsible, but we, we just couldn't get the evidence to, to, to prove that in court. And so, you know, it was quite common, particularly if, if we were examining uh, or targeting active criminals, to say, okay, we, we can't get him for that. What can we get him for? Um, you know, Al Capone didn't go to, to, to jail because they, they proved that he, he was the leader of a, 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 a gangster mob. He went to jail because he hadn't paid his taxes. And when it comes to putting 
the bad guys behind bars, you've got to be imaginative, you've got to be innovative, you've got to work with your, your um, counterpart agencies, with, with, with uh, colleagues in, in different agencies that can help you bring the bad guy to justice. Absolutely, John. And those are very wise words. And I hope that everyone takes them to heart, whether they are uh, law enforcement or NGO uh, or the citizen who wants to do something. Thanks so much for talking with me today. I really appreciate it. And I uh, definitely would urge everyone to read your amazing book, the UN's Lone Ranger. Very, very informative. Thank you so much, John. You're welcome. You're very welcome. You've been listening to the Behind the Schemes podcast, episode 37, with John Seller, author of The UN's Lone Ranger, Combating International Wildlife Crime. We've been talking about John's book, as well as discussing how we can more effectively fight wildlife crime. Again, the book is The UN's Lone Ranger, Combating International Wildlife Crime by John Seller. And there is a link on our website where you can purchase his book, and I highly recommend that you do so. This is Risha Kota-Larsen with Behind the Schemes. <laughs> <laughs>